Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 82, Jules Kim. Uh, Jules is a uh, jewelry designer, lives in New York City, has uh, made a name for herself amongst a certain kind of um, elite uh, R&B, hip-hop, dance kind of artist and figure kind of in that world. I think there are many other people probably that buy and are interested in her stuff, but that's like the kind of people I know about. But I know Jules now for since like the early 2000s. We met maybe 99 or so at a bar. Actually, I'd seen her and her sister, her twin sister at uh, VCU gym. And being the creeper that I am, I had kind of kept an eye on him. And uh, when I finally saw Jules out, I kind of tried to chat her up, and we became friends. And she is one of those people that I have gladly been in the friend zone with, even though that wasn't my initial agenda for a long time. I think she's a really wonderful person, and we had an incredible conversation that, um, you know, I caught an hour of it for the podcast, but it went on and on. We sat downstairs and we talked and we went to lunch at Union Market and we talked and I drove her to the airport and we talked and you know I just sometimes I go around thinking that I'm all alone on my island because I do spend a lot of time traveling living in hotel rooms and all of that and then I hang out with an old friend like Jules who I haven't seen probably in 10 years and we just pick up where we left off and there's you know, there's a reason that we're friends. There's a reason we connect. And, and, like, it's very interesting to check in with people that you have a connection with after large chunks of time and find that you've sort of paralleled each other in your, uh, in your growth, in your, in your uh, development, in your actualization and all of that and, um, and have lots to talk about. And, and we did. And, I mean, Jules, I can't say enough about what an awesome, strong, badass woman she is and uh i usually don't take pictures of people when they're here but i had to take a picture of her to use as the um photo on here because i couldn't believe i was sitting across from such a uh such a potent person and you know i don't i i i tend in my own way of being a feminist to think that the that to be a feminist is to say that that we're equal you know that everything is equal but I'm learning more and more as I pay attention that, yes, we're equals as beings, but the playing field is not equal. The world is not equal. The things that Jules would have to fight against to establish herself and do the things that she wants to do in this world, she's got to fucking tough up and and um, she's got to heave to in a way that I don't as much. And i got to acknowledge that, you know. And I'm, I'm really inspired and impressed by the way that she has maintained this, this level of steely kind of resolve while being a, a very warm and vulnerable person. You know, she hasn't changed. She's just, you know, she's really set her mind to something and done it. And I really learned a lot just from taking her in and hearing her story. And I, I'm sure that you will, too. And, um, oh, yeah, in case I didn't mention, my name's Curtis Payne. And this is my podcast, Tantric Conversation. And this podcast with Jules Kim is fresh out of the oven. I just recorded it two days ago. It's about as fast a turnaround as I ever do. I got a brand new mixing board 
and uh, one of my brand new mics that I bought in January is already crapped out. So that fucked up the next podcast. I recorded one back to back with uh, Tony Bitch, now known as Tony Beach. Some of you may know him. Sort of a front man for rock and roll and punk rock bands around here. Uh, you know, one of those uh, one of those guys who definitely walks it like he talks it, and that hasn't always been a good thing. But we're gonna get that one recorded, and it's gonna be cool. I like connecting with him too after many years many trials and tribulations so um hey i don't say this a lot but if you guys are digging the podcast you go to the website there is a tab on that website where you can make a donation and you know put something in just to let me know you're listening leave a comment be nice you can email me you know i love hearing your feedback it's great to know that this free thing that i do just because i love you doesn't only garner criticism from fucking assholes that don't even know what i'm going for Sorry, I went carried away there. But um, it's great to hear those of you who do get what I'm doing and dig what I'm doing and, and enjoying it. This is for you, and this is why I'm doing it, to connect and to put stuff out there that I want to hear. So, speaking of hearing, let's listen to this conversation between me and the lovely and badass and amazing Jules Kim. You don't have a man voice. You have a sultry, husky oh, voice. So that's what that is. Yeah. Man, I, I definitely would never confuse you as a man on the Yeah, phone. it was probably some telemarketer who wanted to just have fun that day. Just fucking with you. Mm. That's not a good place to start. Yeah, well, I was... Trying a, to sell some. I mean... <laughs> hey, ra- raise it up a little bit so that it's like the middle of the mic. Whoa. It's okay. Got it adjusting the mics we like to have this i've started recording so we like to have this kind of action you can also move the little boom up this part oh damn it i hold that okay i'm holding it and then raise it ta-da got it okay there we go okay so how does that sound that's good cool that's much better um when we were driving away from the hotel, mm-hmm. I found out that you, you're you from here, and I did not know that. Yeah. That's so funny that you didn't recall that. Yeah. Uh, well, I met you, like, you know, I think I originally saw Sam at the gym. Uh-huh. Because you didn't really go to the VCU gym, did you? Yeah, I did. You did? Okay, mm-hmm. so maybe I saw both of you and didn't know it was two different girls. Yeah, you know, because we, <laughs> we would give the gym about 10 minutes relay time. <laughs> so she would go in one minute and then uh-huh. i'll give her about 10 minutes and then i'll go work out next to her so you so both was... would be in there yeah okay i mean I, you both really caught my eye i mean you were very you know unique looking women in Thanks. the gym so i guess i did see you both at the same time and then i remember i met you someplace like um the hill cafe at christmas time uh-huh and i started chatting you up at mm-hmm. that point mm-hmm. yeah i remember lucy said those girls really want to live in new york you can tell <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. <laughs> she was right now, wasn't she? Yes. And you do, and she does. Yep. Yeah. Um, so where, where, what neighborhood, where, what part of town, West End? I was born in the West End at Henrico Doctors. Mm. And uh, yeah, I grew up in the West End, like in the Freeman District. Mm-hmm. And then from there, moved to Godwin, because my sister and I played volleyball. So we wanted to follow like the best program. Mm. And I also played music, and that also had a very like prestigious sort of 
notoriety. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. Freeman did the school. Or... No, Godwin. Godwin, you went. Okay, sorry. You yeah, were in the Freeman my... district, but you went to Godwin. We moved, so oh, we could. Okay, let me let me pay attention here. Catch up. We moved so we could follow the programming of mm-hmm. music and sports that we needed to to overachieve properly. Ah. Uh-huh. Did you have that that kind of drive from your parents? Big time. You know, Randy Newman has a song called Korean Parents for Sale. <laughs> okay, but let's get <laughs> it straight. To motivate you. Let's get it <laughs> They're straight. They're not any smarter. They're, they just work harder. Their parents oh make them do it. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> but I'm actually only half Korean. Okay. And it's only half driven. Yeah, only half driven. So maybe that's why I'm full throttle. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad was a non-present dad, so I think another sort of missing link to mm-hmm. filling in empty space kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, So, um, yeah, my mom was a single artist-minded mother, mm-hmm. and she raised two twins on her own, which is an epic feat yeah. in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. While still, like, catering to our needs and, like, having two rambunctious, like, forward-thinking mm-hmm. little girls. Mm-hmm. Forward-thinking meaning, like, we had to grow up real fast. Mm-hmm. And so when you have like um, a certain level of adult activity in front of you as a child, like you're, you really have to cope with that mm-hmm. and you sort of miss out on a childhood. And I know that now yeah, as an yeah. adult Yeah. and ain't no shame in it. It's really just who, what made me who I am mm-hmm. today. And even when I'm hanging out with my mother this weekend, I mean, I was watching her watch me as I was working and I was like, she can accept this because she knows where I come from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you get some, you get re- really do get different perspective on your parents as you get older, and you realize that when they were the grown-ups, they were like younger than you are now. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're just kids themselves growing up along the way. Oh, totally. And I understand like being a parent. Um, you know, it's a situation that a lot of people don't plan for, and maybe it's. Uh, you know, it's something that sort of falls into their life together. And my parents, when my mother became pregnant, like it was apparent that they weren't going to be together for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. My father was never meant to be a father, nor was he meant to be a husband. Mm-hmm. So knowing that clearly it took a lot of... Do you want to talk? tell me about your dad a little bit? Yeah, you, he's, yeah. Uh, he's a character. Mm-hmm. He's Korean. His family... Moved from Seoul, Korea in the early 50s, and they lived in Wisconsin, which, as you could tell at that time, mm-hmm. it was a rarity for an Asian family to be placed in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of uh, discomfort and wriggle room for my dad, and mm-hmm. he really he absorbed that, and he'll have that to the day he dies. Yeah, not fitting in. Not fitting in, being an immigrant and being unhappy with that status. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's been... Is that my phone? I think it's mine. Oh, Sorry about that. No, oh, that's okay. Um, it sort of molded his identity, and he has, like, this vicious tension, and he took it into art, and that's, I think, a great place for him. What kind of art? He was doing sketching, etching, painting, drawing. Um, he then went into welding, blacksmithing. He was working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. My parents met at Pratt University. Uh, my mom was a painting printmaking major and she was also a dancer a modern dancer she had her own modern dance uh, studio on 57th street oh wow yeah so it's really interesting when i moved to new york my mother came and visited me and i was living in clinton hill fort green area and we walked by the place that my mom and my dad used to live oh, in. oh wow yeah 
So your did your dad come from Korea to New York? Or he came he... from Korea to Wisconsin. So in he the went 50s. straight. Okay, in the fifties he was in Wisconsin. Yeah, okay. and then from and there his, was his family. His family. His father was um, a doctor, and he moved from Korea to the United States to introduce the uh, TB vaccination. Vaccine. Oh wow. So he would use the vaccination on his kids, which my dad was found. he experimenting before he had it ironed out. Oh shit. <laughs> Good old non-FDA. Wow. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, it was a crazy childhood for my father. And, you know, clearly childhood molds us into the people we become. Mm-hmm. And my father, you know, took to the streets when he was in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm, he was mm-hmm. a thug. Mm-hmm. And he was doing graffiti over on Myrtle Avenue. How old was he when Myrtle he left Avenue. Wisconsin and moved to New York? Yeah. Mm, I believe that he was in his... 20s mid 20s not quite sure about his previous life to be honest with you it's sort of like a a gaping hole but i believe because i had no business knowing what he was doing before i was born have you been digging into this stuff a bit lately in general i've had to curtis yes because it seems like you've got a narrative going on that you've you've been uh, exploring this and piecing things together no piecing things together because there's an element of discovery that i really had to face when i was in university because Mm -hmm. i was you know everybody thinks themselves to be completely unique yeah and for me, I needed to iron out what that was. Mm-hmm. And it meant that I need to go back and discover where the fuck I came from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in doing so, I actually went into a very traumatic uh, moment that happened in my childhood and revisited it and mm. uh, really did a lot of research, heavy-handed research on it and wound up having you know a 30-page paper on it. Wow. Did you do this with help, with a guide of some kind? No. You just did it on your own? Early? It was for school. It was for literature. When? Like a while ago? Yeah. Like back when you were in school? At VCU because I went to VCU. Because oh. it seems like you've been thinking about this recently. Well, know? I mean, um, he is half of the texture of who I am. Yeah. I have to confront that. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to deny it. But for sure, you know, whenever I hang out with him, because I, I did not grow up with him at all. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I hang out with him, it's quite interesting where he has isms and even like belief systems that sort of come out, which I understand are genetic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but then he also has like this like really sharp, angry side that I can't can't jive with. Mm-hmm. Like I won't. Like yeah. I, I've worked really hard to have really positive surroundings. Yeah. And we all have that opportunity to go into the darkness, sure, as sure. you know. We and have a shadow self. Yeah, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I go there. I like to play, and then mm-hmm. I come back, and I'm okay. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. But I know where it comes from. So knowing where it comes from, I'm sort of like aware of how potentially dangerous it could be mm-hmm. to live in the darkness. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I got a, uh, I got a temper myself, mm. and like I really think of myself as a sweet guy. Mm-hmm. But things trigger me, and like I'm yelling like lunatic. Yeah. Sometimes, especially in the car. Yeah. People cut <laughs> me off. Road rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I That's get my it. worst. And I listen to myself. And I'm like, would anybody want to be sitting next to you? Nope. Right now. <laughs> And also not in any loving form. That's the thing, you know, and, and I use that as a, as a you know, a, a, a window, like the idea of somebody sitting in that car, but then the metaphor, you know, of somebody on the ride with you doing life and like that's your fucking response to being frustrated or thwarted 
or whatever no. you know it's not sustainable curtis you better stop that it's, shit. i'm working on it but you know that kind of shit like you know it's built the fuck in you know it's like I, I grew up with a family that while cohesive and loving did a lot of yelling at each other yeah and not just in my house but you know down the street was the mcdonald's and there was with the same amount of yelling going on down there and we all just grew up yelling we grew up like yelling between houses yeah, yelling also. down the block you know and um and i don't really it, it doesn't bother me when my dad hits the ceiling and starts yelling. I'm like, he's just making a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. But I've dated a lot of people that are like, they get, they freeze in their tracks. Mm-hmm. They, <laughs> They're like, is it's this like, I better normal? make myself really small before this dinosaur tramples me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm not violent at all, but like, I just, that's, it comes bursting out of me like that, you know, like a, it's like steam valve mm-hmm. is volume, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think it's it's interesting though to like you got to identify all of that stuff I think about where you come from so mm-hmm. you can also say it's also not relevant you know cuz we have the choice of how we're going to be mm-hmm. you know now That's true. And 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 ever I think we were talking about this driving over here and you just brought it up the uniqueness of course in my thing we we refer to it as terminal uniqueness in that I am so special that nobody can relate to me and nobody can help me and therefore I should just go down this thing to the bitter end you know and being able to get out of that is is really tough for people even who are fucked up much less people who are relatively functional mm-hmm. you know but we all actually it, i don't think that comes from anywhere i think it's our natural state mm-hmm. to be ego, egotistical of course and the more that that can be seriously reinforced by shit that's going on especially in our culture and especially when you live somewhere like new york where if you don't have a big ego, you're going to get washed over. You're not going to be able to stand out. You're not going to be able to assert yourself. You're not going to be able to survive in a lot of different kinds of ways, you mm-hmm. know. But at the same time, you can't go so far that you become a total fucking narcissist. I mean, mm-hmm. some people are pathologically just already narcissists. But there's also extremes of belief that you reinforce that get you there, mm-hmm. you know. And it's reversible. But like, you know, you can get there. I know I've, I've gotten there. Yeah, you know? for sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're talking about ego, it's um, an interesting topic because I'm an artist mm-hmm. and um, I don't allow for that much. Uh, there's not much room for critique regarding my work because mm-hmm. uh, I actually have true confidence. And it yeah. comes from uh, being raised in a really uh, hardcore situation. Mm-hmm. And instead of taking that and rolling that into like a snowball of defeat already, I took that and I manifested it into an actual viable internationally known business. Yeah. And we want to get to that in a little bit. I'm still wanting to get the uh, timeline of, because you know, it was, I'm a honky and it was hard for me to hang in the West End, you know? (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Like, cause that is, it's brutally like, I went from, yeah, well, and not just white, but superficial in a way. And who's your daddy and what's he do? And you know, it's materialistic in that way. And like, I grew up in this neighborhood where that really wasn't the, you know, a drive, a push, a measuring stick, anything like that. And then I got sent to Marymount for high school and I'm out there with all those kids. And I found it as a person who's supposedly set up for you know, white male, blonde hair, blue eyes, I found it oppressive. So I can only imagine, you know, what it was like living in, going to Godwin and all of that. Yeah, I mean, like, I definitely 
understood how to create a persona and how to sustain it throughout Mm -hmm. my high school career and I kept busy and I was outgoing but I never tried to be popular that was not a goal of mine I was affectionate towards people but for sure I was not going to invade any type of social Mm -hmm. structure like I had no need for it like I was perfectly content having my best friend going to Freeman hanging Mm -hmm. out with Freeman peeps I didn't really hang out with Goblin peeps yeah um, even though Freeman was just as, right. you know, West End, but that was a little bit more uh, rough. Uh, or, I think or... so. Well, I think Freeman was a little bit more diverse. Yeah, you know, yeah. if we're here talking about Richmond, Virginia, and being a native, like mm-hmm. it's important to, you know, state that you know every goddamn neighborhood is different. Everything yeah, comes yeah. from something. Yeah. Godwin was a little bit newer, mm-hmm. so clearly when you have a new neighborhood, there's a certain amount of development, and who comes to those? Right, right. Fresh peeps. Yeah. White yeah, peeps. Yeah, so the, the, the homogenous white yeah. folks, you know, and it's I think it's important to make these distinctions when we're talking about this stuff because there's an awful lot of diversity amongst Caucasian people. Of course there but is. Yet they get lumped together just white people. Yeah. You know, but what I'm we mean by white. white, right, right. But what we mean by white people when you say white people is super homogenous, you know, like conformist like material, like middle of the road types that are going to want to live in the latest housing development, you know, and move as far away from the diversity of the city as possible, frightened of it or averse to it for one reason or another. Yeah, exactly. However they find motivation and moving, it's totally fine. What, uh, what we had done in terms of my high school understanding is that we had followed the potential and Mm -hmm. that's what I did when I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I'm a where person, the opportunities yeah were. exactly I right. create my own opportunity I try to influence my mother to identify that mm-hmm. and to enable us to do so because that's where we're going to find our true happiness we my twin sister and I are not people who settle mm-hmm. and we're also not followers we're mm-hmm. a leader uh, mindset that's mm-hmm. our personality and since we're identical twins I mean there's <laughs> you can't Was, but I mean you were saying you didn't like make an effort to fit in or make an effort to be part of like clicks and shit but were you fucked with no. at all no they left you alone tall volleyball playing yeah you know <laughs> no if you like like i said like creating a persona where there's a certain amount of non-approachability mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i intimidate a lot of people um also being mixed race like we were the only mixed race people in the school yeah um <clears throat> so in in that way and also i was like very I guess like fashion driven like mm-hmm. I wore what I wanted to wear I didn't like fall into the trends at the time like but like those girls the mean girls didn't fuck with you for that like they just didn't know yeah, that's good no I understood that you know I, I wasn't bitter towards them I wasn't envious of them and it was a safe place for me to be for me to be jumping around hey pause for one second let me try okay talk 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 yeah, talk yeah. okay I didn't have that uh compressor thing on whatever Uh and no it's it's still going to record just as well but um this helps okay it's a little extra uh eq kind of thing um so did you like i didn't realize this also so in a lot of ways you moving back to new york was a return trip yeah kind of even though you were born here your parents had Mm -hmm. they met in new york Mm -hmm. and they met in a very extremely tumultuous time in New York mm-hmm. in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in 79. 
but they were like running around in summer sam type of oh yeah yeah. Uh blackouts and yeah blackouts and Mm -hmm. riots and Mm -hmm. gangs and my dad warriors yeah they were warriors (laughs) no no my dad was he was in that shit yes wow that's wild hardcore so um when you are so you mentioned that you were a musician in Mm -hmm. uh high school what were you playing I played flute, and then I went to VCU mm-hmm. and followed the classically trained path of being a musician. But really? Yeah. You, you did that at VCU? Yeah. Wow. I, I really I excelled in music. Um, I was first chair for everything, principal chair, lead. Um, but I remember this one episode where I was like, uh, I was playing a Claude Debussy, this, mm-hmm. this uh, song called Sierinx. And I was taking breaths where I wasn't supposed to. And my professor was like, Jules, you can't do that. You have to follow the written uh-huh. path. You have to follow what DBC wanted you to play. Uh-huh. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, that's against my constitution. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so you got out of the classical kind of thing. Yeah. I just. But did you quit playing flute altogether at that point? Um, yeah, I did. Huh. I did. You couldn't turn it into the Jean-Luc Ponty thing, and you know what like I did? I played in a hip-hop was band. Was that his name? The French flautist, I think. I don't know. James Gall. I think he was... played with like uh, Frank Zappa. I think he was. Oh, you know what? I realized when I was studying I'm classically. Look that up. Keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> when I was studying classical flute, I understood that there was a jazz standard that right. I could have followed, but I was so far gone into the classically trained ritual that. For me to feel comfortable in an improv format would have been a little bit odd for me. Right, because that isn't how you approached playing. No, right? no. Reading I, music and yeah. You know. But I the was, one time you took that breath, that was the opening. No, it really you know? led me. It really sort of <laughs> asserted. No, he was a violin player. John oh, Conte. okay. Okay. Um, it really sort of asserted, like Jethro Tull kind of stuff. Like oh, I yeah, could have, uh-huh. I could have done that, but I played more in hip hop bands. Right. Um, but I did stop playing for a while and I actually bought Jean-Pierre Rampal. That's, oh, uh, okay. That's Rampal. I <laughs> but I actually, mm, I lived over on Grove street, Grove and Lombardi mm-hmm. and I got robbed and they robbed my sheet music and my flute, my shoes and, uh, my camera. So I knew it was someone I knew. Oh uh, yeah. And I was in New York when I got robbed. Um, so after that, I was like, you know what? Fuck this shit. You mm. know what? I'm going to move on. Um, that's fine. I'll find my way back to it. And actually I did mm-hmm. because I started DJing. And yeah. yeah. So you find your musicality in certain ways l- along the path. Mm-hmm. And I found it back in the music of records. Mm-hmm. And so I started spinning house. And actually my, my boy Chell, who actually lives here in Richmond now, he taught me how to spin. And then when I moved to New York, it, I was like, okay, well, I'm, ge- I'm going to be a DJ. Here we go. And when we say DJ, you mean like two turntables, like cutting records together yeah. and all that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But more in a club mm-hmm. type of thing. So, um, yeah, I started throwing parties. And even here in Richmond, I was throwing parties with my sister, like mm-hmm. on Broad Street, East Gray Street, like wherever we could find the vapid space, we'd mm-hmm. fill it. Mm-hmm. And I think also it's funny because I have like these like visceral reactions to poor misuse of space, bad music, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and bad style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Must be hard being here. Right? This, 
last weekend. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. But the, it's quite interesting because as I'm driving down Broad Street and I'm actually setting up my trunk show inside of the space across the street from where I threw this like really big party mm-hmm. in probably 1999 or something mm-hmm. like that. I was like, whoa, dude, this is so going back to my roots. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't really move further down the life path if we don't acknowledge where we come from. Yeah. And also humility is is an asset. It's mm-hmm. something that I identify with and I'm super confident about. And I know that I got through this shit and am able to be fruitful and prolific. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think it's really quite That's interesting. interesting. You know, it's, con- it's humility and confidence together. Um I mean, true humility is basically knowing your size and knowing Mm -hmm. who you are Mm -hmm. and knowing, you know, and not being self-aggrandized or self, um, a face too self-effacing or too, too low. It's just, it's just, it's balance. That's what really humility is, is balance. Agreed. You know, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not this shit and I'm also not a piece of shit. Yeah. Agreed. Just doing my part. There is a, yeah, exactly. There is a happy medium and, you know, if I were to overemphasize my ego then that's where you border on narcissistic behavior and um i don't believe in that i don't my actual nature is one from a very humble beginning Mm -hmm. and i want to make sure that even though i speak and work amongst like the highest flying yeah individuals i still am just a human being Mm -hmm. and so are they yeah yeah and that's the i mean it is tough when when you are a beautiful person and you've made it into those you know i mean when you got up there you were doing those parties and stuff so you get into that scene you're Mm -hmm. past the velvet ropes you're Mm -hmm. always in the vip and all that kind of shit Mm -hmm. it's easy to lose sight of because there's that that barrier made you know there's the people who don't are on the other side of those ropes and there's people who are not in those rooms and you can begin to believe that you're better than Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. you know they're from fucking jersey you know they're from bridge and tunnel able you know we make them wait in line just so people can see that there's something going on here. And... <laughs> <laughs> Shit, the secret's out. <laughs> Everybody knows that. That's old school. Yeah. It, it's that's an interesting phenomenon too. I don't know if a lot of people who are outside of you know your world or outside of New York know that like you know what a party is isn't what we think of as a party here where it happens one day out of the week. It's like somebody has a night in a bar or a club every week, and it's like it's a business. Like you're promoting an event weekly. People are in a habit of going there. It's a you know, it's an established thing. It's, mm-hmm. um, and it does a lot. It, f- it fulfills a lot of functions. I mean, there's totally people does. there to party. There's people there to get fucked up. There's people there to, to network. You know, you have all kind of strata of Manhattan society at those places. Mm-hmm. You know, the person hasn't gotten on in any way is there, you know, hanging out with like fucking mega star. It's true. You know, gets to meet that person. That person gets to connect with that and the other person you know the the high connects with the low the low connects with the high yeah you know it's that and you got to go to those things if you want to make um if you want to make progress in certain careers in that town no it's true networking and connectivity is a major source of um potential Mm -hmm. especially in a place like manhattan and i learned that the minute I landed, basically, mm-hmm. because I come from a small town, so to speak, Richmond. Mm-hmm. It is small. It is small, comparatively. Um, I understood that I basically threw up three cards in the air. I was styling, I was DJing, and I was making jewelry. Because here at VCU, I took a basic 101 course after I moved back from France. 
um, because I lived in France for a year abroad. And, you know, that experience really taught me about humility because Mm -hmm. I went there not speaking a language. Mm -hmm. I remember looking out of the airplane, like this little pinhole into France. And I was like, fuck, what the fuck did I just do? I don't even know how to get in a car or Mm -hmm. am I taking a car? Uh Wait, how am I getting to the university? Where (laughs) am I going? Yeah. Like, just like. You don't speak the language. No. I didn't know that. I thought you'd learn French before you went. Because no. we how old were you when you went? We'd, we'd met by then, right? Probably, yeah. I was uh, 19. I guess, no. no I, I, I met you when you were, at least, you were at least 21. But Yeah, yeah. Right. Ha, that's what you thought. <laughs> <laughs> I remember turning 21 with my sister. We were at Sticky Rice, and everyone's like, how old are you? And we're like, 21, motherfucker. And they're like, shit, we've been serving you for years. <laughs> yes, a lot of, I hear that story from a lot of attractive young ladies. Uh-huh, well, it happens, <laughs> Don't you know. ask. Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, well, hustle this, <laughs> hustle that, you know. So, um, okay, so you, you you had that experience of going into some place where you didn't know the deal, and yeah. like that was that's awesome learning experience too. Yeah. You realize how much you take for granted. Where well, you, you I know. knew that I I knew that being an American is overall speaking, um, we're a spoiled little brat of a nation, mm-hmm. and I wasn't raised to think that way, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like taking advantage of people. In general, as a teenager, that's how I felt. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to escape the university experience, which was not conducive to my learning. Because, Mm -hmm. like I said, I wanted to dictate and lead my own education. Mm -hmm. And the basic, like, syllabus did not work for me. Mm -hmm. Just didn't work for me. And so I started breaking it apart into experiences from my music Mm -hmm. to my French uh to even like the jewelry experience i came back and i catered my own degree called international arts Uh, really yeah and at that time that i think it was the first year where students could begin to piece together their bachelor program Mm -hmm. so i was one of the first students at vcu to be able to do that and i remember i had a little tiff with my fashion department head because i said listen like this program ain't working for me and the classes that I take represent the same ability and know-how that these other classes on your syllabus mm-hmm. require. Mm-hmm. I think you should reevaluate your standards here. And mm-hmm. she was like, well, what gives you the right blah, blah? And I said, well, it, it's, it's no big deal because I'm moving to France anyway. <laughs> and you do must you have been a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, no. well, that's what it fucking takes. No, I mean, seriously. I'm like, yeah. I'm moving to a different nation so I could experiment with my goddamn self because yeah. I can't do it here. Yeah. And um, when I moved, I didn't associate nor did I affiliate or want to be around any English-speaking human beings while I was mm-hmm. in this, uh, you know, this study abroad. So from Americans to Irish to English, I was like, hi, nice to meet you guys. Later. Mm, I'm going to go mm. talk with these Italians and French people mm. and maybe, you know, this girl from Lisbon is really fucking cool. So mm. let me just do that. And I lived in a dorm and that was also unacceptable. Mm. To so, you. To me. Yeah. You wanted to be in the real shit. Yeah. Right? And I was mm. like, why am I doing this? This is like some like prefab thing. Mm-hmm. Fuck this. I'm not, I'm not good at this. Mm-hmm. And so my best friend, she was Italian Um, she and I moved into the city and basically told the university to pay us to do so. Oh, wow. (laughs) They were paying for our, our housing lodging anyway. Right. right. So might as well just pay for it in the same place, but different. Mm -hmm. And so that worked out and that was hilarious. And 
there was a lot of learning going on, mm-hmm. and I wound up dating a French celebrity, um, met him in the club, and sort of went on tour, recorded flute with him. Um, but uh, j'ai vécu une belle vie française. Hein? I learned everything through him. He, at some point, I was super frustrated because I couldn't speak French fluently, and this sort of word to the wise when I was learning a different culture and language, he said, stop thinking about it. Yeah. Stop trying to translate as you go. Just translate as you are. And I was like, huh, that's fucking brilliant. That's funny. I remember I tried to, I tried to speak French with you at um, Sweetwater one night huh. and, uh, and I wasn't doing that, you know, like I was, and you were like, it's okay. Like, <laughs> just stop. <laughs> but like when I was in France and I was drunk or drinking, yeah, you're and I was uninhibited, just, right? I was just communicating. I was flowing with yeah. it. I mean, bad grammar and Whatever. you know, not having all the words I wanted. But I mean, I was hanging out with French people and yeah. But that's the thing is, it's like, and it's kind of like playing music or doing anything creative is, it's hard to do that when you're thinking, you're overthinking. Yeah, it, you, you know, know I, I actually encourage mistakes because my community around me would correct me. And if they didn't, that's then I'm going to sound like an asshole and Mm. I'm your asshole friend. Hi. You know, Mm. so I would ask people to correct me. I made this like ultimate mistake one day when we were in Deauville and we were at this restaurant. Deauville is like this notable beach town Mm -hmm. where like the movies go and Mm -hmm. it's like winning a César or the Cannes Mm -hmm. Film Festival. And we were there and I was um, eating breakfast with my boyfriend. I said, Passe-moi le préservative. And he was like, fuck. No, you can't say that, honey. You just told me to pass you the condoms. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Well, that might have been appropriate. In yeah, at that time, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, uh, thank God I wasn't like in a dignified dinner. Yeah. You know, and I... Well, fuck, you were a kid. From, I mean, what were you, 19, 20? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had to cut you some slack. But it's, it's awesome that you were taking it seriously because that's the ugly... Uh-oh. That just ha- oh, that's just the headphones. It's still recording. Um, That ugly American um, stereotype is really the people we were talking about before that are just the the complete middle-of-the-road commercial Americans. You know, and they think the way that we know how to parse that out within the borders of this country, we know, like, if you go over here to this part of town, that's who you're going to encounter. You go to Sharp Pump, you know, town center. But to them, it's the entire fucking continent, you know. We're all like that. Because generally the people that can afford to come run around Paris – you know, for a week or two are those people. So I assume we're all like that. So we're all over there trying to be ambassadors and we're not like that. So we take it really seriously. Yeah. Like how you're going to, and I was super you defensive know. when I was in France too, because it was that era of George Bush. Yeah. Everyone yeah. thought I was packing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like you had a weapon yeah. packing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, that's such like a Supreme insult. Right. And I really had to work through those type of I- ideas that French people had on Americans, but mm-hmm. they had every right to assert that type of uh, generalization. Well, it's also important to feed it back to them and, and, and say, hey, look, you are being um, awfully like prejudiced or short-sighted or bigoted right. because we're, we're as diverse a country as you are. you know. So it's also like, in, in that vein, Curtis, then I would also need to be confident with the language and the culture in order yeah. to defend myself yeah. as well as move forward. Yeah. Um, so my learning process was totally dictated by every experience that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember this moment when I was, before I moved into the city, um, I was super frustrated that I couldn't speak French and I was looking out of my window one night and I was like, is there a man outside of my window jacking off? Oh, wow. Uh, 
c'est pas acceptable. I was like, that's <laughs> not fucking cool. And I called the cops. Uh-huh. And the cops came, and this guy was totally jerking off in Peeping front of Tom, my... Peeping Tom, I'll tell you, yeah. damn, And, mm. like, the cops came, and it was fucking crazy. And this guy totally, like, waddled back to his car where his lights weren't on. So he had been doing this for a while. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, screaming out of my window, running down into the field and running after him while he waddled back to his car. And the cops are running after me being like, lash le, like, don't fucking touch him. Don't, mm-hmm. you know. But for me, I'm like, oh, fuck you, <laughs> I'm going to fucking pound your face in. <laughs> and I activated my French I was like, enculé toi, man. I was like cussing at him. And when. Enculé toi, that's like fuck you in the ass. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah, totally. And so I understood the moment where I was in panic mode. What is it? Flight of fear or whatever. I understood that now I could speak French. Mm-hmm. And these police officers were like, qu'est-ce qui se passe? I was like, and I looked at them and I went like this and I couldn't, I didn't know the word for masturbate. Yeah, uh-huh. And they're like, se fait masturber. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Okay. And at that moment, That's it was like. a universal like, yeah. motion there. <laughs> exactly. So I understood at that moment that, uh, okay, I was no longer desperate to understand because like the human nature pushed me into understanding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And from that point on, I could speak French. That's awesome. Yeah. It was That's really... kind of fucked up, but it's awesome at the same time. I mean, yeah. it, nothing surprises me mm-hmm. really. Did you have experiences like that in Richmond when you lived here or was it a fairly safe? Other than uh... getting robbed. Um... Yeah, no, it was no. Fine. So when did, like, I guess at the time that I was communicating with you pretty regularly, like early 2000s, mm-hmm. like after I moved back from New York and the jewelry thing, was that even on your radar at that point? When did you start doing that? Um, yes, it actually started. So I started dappling in the jewelry once I was spinning records. And I did that because I was assisting other fashion people. And I didn't want to be doing that anymore. I learned what I needed to learn. Mm-hmm. And I also learned what I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And so I set out to create my own business without actually knowing. Um, I wanted to wear my own jewelry. And at that moment, there was nothing sufficient enough to uh, explain to people who I was without saying anything. Yeah. So, so these talismans and like... Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So there's nothing that could display who I was. There was, you know, either ghetto door knockers or Tiffany's, neither mm-hmm. of which mm-hmm. I conform with. So right, I needed right. to create the middle ground. And because there was a neglect in that jewelry marketplace, I was like, fuck this shit. I'm I still remember this. one of the first things I saw you made was a brass knuckles clutch handle like yeah. for a purse. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and yeah, that whole idea of bringing, uh, more or less like a luxury regard for a street aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, That's my edge. That to me defined what I was going to do. I was hand making graffiti nameplates because here in Richmond, at that point bling was like fucking gold chains and like tacky shit. And like, and like you, you, you sort of merged classy jewelry with the, uh, with the street. Yeah. Jewelry, which was dookie ropes. Yeah. yeah. No, there's stuff that I would do because, you know, I was coming from the ghetto, so to speak, like my 
experience with diversity and um, how would you say, not just like the people that populated where I lived, but also how we got by. Mm -hmm. Like it was an extreme hustle and my Mm -hmm. mother fucking worked her butt off Mm -hmm. and compromised her future Mm -hmm. for me. And so I understood that I had a message and I was going Mm -hmm. to get it across through me. And at the beginning, when I was making these nameplates, I would hand make them and then I would be spinning my parties and editors of magazines, fashion people, celebs, whatever would frequent my parties. And from there, it sort of started spinning. And I understood that, oh, shit, I can't over promise and under deliver. Now Mm. I have to distribute. Yeah. So I was working at like the sports bar and I might have slung maybe two beers. And then I said to myself, what am I doing here? I took my jewelry and I said, sorry, girl, thanks for the job, but I'm quitting. And I just ran to the only store I knew at the time, Atrium on Broadway and Bleecker. I said, listen, I got this. And they said, we've never seen anything like this before. I'm like, that's right. (laughs) And that was my first point of distribution. And from there, you know, if you get published in, in press, that's mm-hmm. actual like diligence. Yeah. So I needed to actually distribute in order for me to continue to get press. And so but you worked your ass off for this shit. It wasn't yeah. like you just being at the right place no, at no, the no, right no, time. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, and I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And you're, you're going to start manufacturing stuff in, on scale and no clue how you're going to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, at that moment, I didn't even know how really to build a jewelry collection because mm-hmm. I wasn't exposed to jewelry mm-hmm. as an industry. So I was using the tools of the jewelry industry, but applying it in the fashion way. Mm-hmm. And that was not a popular choice mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. time in 2000. Because people want to be able to sell their jewels to anybody regardless of their fashion uh, niche, maybe. But you were sp- picking a very specific niche. The jewelry mark. industry wouldn't have been able to acknowledge such an edgy approach. Like Coke straws? Yep. <laughs> Diamond studded. Diamond studded Coke straws. They could not acknowledge the culture involved in my work. Right, right. Um, it was too taboo, uh, too racy, too edgy. And what I started to understand as time went on is that that edge was my point of view. Mm-hmm. And it didn't necessarily have to be so direct. International disco slash hip hop uh club um hmm. i'm running out of words here but yeah that's no it, it literally if you want to just like get down to the because it's got a little of that studio 54 in there but it's also got this the street hip-hop like, yeah. thing in there it acknowledges you know? a um it acknowledges diversity in a luxury mm-hmm. format and but it also acknowledges the seedy side of mm-hmm. life you know like the um I mean the fact that you're making coke straws and brass knuckled things and I don't like, do that now. No, you're, we've we've transcended that. Yes. So that was early like eye catching kind of edgy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it made noise, and mm-hmm. I understood how to make progress. And mm-hmm. you have to be disruptive in mm-hmm. order for you to actually encourage change. Mm-hmm. And what I was doing at that time was carving out my own market niche and it did not exist it was 99 percent tiffany's one percent mm-hmm. bejewels mm-hmm. and bejewels the actual word is derived right from me not knowing what the fuck i was gonna well it's do. awesome it works out because be like bijou is jewelry in french yeah. right mm-hmm. and plus your name jewels is like the english of... my name was julie before <laughs> oh yeah i moved to france <laughs> and my nickname <laughs> My nickname, because I was such a tomboy with a swarthy, bassy voice, 
<laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, that my name, name was, was Julie. Yeah, my name That's is your, Julie. That is your That's name on your birth, birth certificate. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. My name is Julie, and when I moved to France, my boyfriend started calling me Jules, ah. which in French is a man's name. Yeah. Like Jules Asian. Like Jules Verne. Yeah, Jules Verne. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved back, I didn't want to identify with the Julie because that wasn't me anymore. Mm-hmm. It was Jules. Mm-hmm. And my twin sister had a fucking problem with that. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that I lost any integrity of who I was. It's more that this was me moving on. Well, I, you know, it's... All right, so right, and you as twins had always sort of had a uh, complementary identities, yeah. right? And they kind of orbit around each other. Yeah, and, you know, of course, I understood, yeah. mm-hmm. but uh, I was going to do it with or without permission. And so with the, the jewelry, basically, I remember coming home after all this effort and starting to place my jewels, and they're like, what's the brand name? I'm like, shit, fuck, I got to go home and figure that out. Mm-hmm. So I remember sitting down and being like, okay, Jules Kim, JulesKim.com. Ew, <laughs> no, mm-hmm. that's not it. Also, like, I didn't want an eponymous name, brand name, because if I ever wanted to do anything as an artist separate from my jewelry, I needed right. to plan for that now, yeah. then. And so, so, separate brand. Yeah, I needed to have yeah. a personal trademark and then my actual, like, brand itself. And did you, you came up with this thinking on your own. Is any of this the result of marketing classes no. or anything like that? No, you just grok in it, yeah. you know? That's awesome. Yeah. I had to educate myself because... I was, I think, too disruptive in college to actually absorb any type of real... Mm-hmm. Maybe subliminally. <laughs> yeah, maybe subliminally. Maybe it was in there just like the French. When you got under stress, it kind of started coming out. Yeah, you... yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I just had to be drunk all the time. <laughs> but basically, you know, bijou en français, it's gem and mm-hmm. jewelry. And then with my nickname, Jules, I was like, okay, some wordplay. That's play. a great wordplay. It's, yeah. it's awesome. Plus, Jules is like the English for... The same thing. Yeah. So you get the double whammy of. So it's you know. be jewels, meaning uh, my ego is not that great, and who gives a shit? Like mm-hmm. we're all just people. So be me too. Mm-hmm. Be a human. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Be and, jewels. Uh huh. All right. And then also. And then nobody says it's by jewels. So this is for uh, any gender, any any sexual identity. It's also, all across. it's yeah. by jewels, mm-hmm. being like they're. You made it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I made it. And it's, it's for everyone. Mm-hmm. And also buy my motherfucking jewelry. so so many facets Mm -hmm. to be jewels um and it's something that just the brand name itself represent represented the possibility for everything to come from and it also represents the core value of Mm -hmm. me being just Mm -hmm. uh, me being an edgy designer and you know so you remind me of you might even know this person you know bonnie thornton she does robin hood and she also djs and does a lot of parties in new york and like mm-hmm. you guys have almost had parallel kind of lives up there um i mean i can't believe you haven't crossed paths no. yet um but like i met her when she was probably 20 and had or 21 and had just moved to the city and was living in the west village and like she was totally into the club scene i was totally not like i could not afford to be in the club right. scene and even there weren't enough drink tickets to get me where i wanted yeah. to be yeah you yeah know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh but i would still try to follow her into those places you know and try to hang out and there was one that was kind of common ground on varick i mean uh what was it um greenwich uh remember uh, don hills yeah, over yeah. there so we used to go to beaver on closed. thursday nights that club's closed all together yeah um but anyway she was really making like 
making her way in that and it has found that way to assert herself in it and also to play on the favors of the people that wanted to get in her pants basically and not let them get in her pants yeah, you know yeah. but like recognize that that's the commodity that you've got to work with there and you can't give it away you can't sell it you can't even ever let it be realized you know you can but you can recognize that some people can have those hopes and they'll be helping you and network you and support you and all of that without using them you just recognize it's a fucking game you know um the game is out there it's either play or get played yeah, yeah. and uh, and and i tried to date her while all of that was going on and i was so much more of an aimless like i want to try this i want to try that i'm i may i'm running food at a restaurant you know i made hardly any money you know and it really like fucking she wasn't treating me like that but i couldn't hang you know like i just felt so like small next to all of that stuff and like you know she'd call me and be like come down here you know i'm sitting with james hetfield and like you know various you know name droppy kind of people and i'm like what am what would i be doing there like why do you even need me and um and I wonder, I mean, with, with the level of accomplishment and drive and ambition you've had, have you had trouble, you know, orbiting with a dude in that or like having a relationship work alongside that? Have, have guys, are, do you, you basically have to find a guy that's working, that's hustling like that too, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think that being uh, an empowered woman and with a passion for what she does, um, can be quite intimidating to the male race. It well, it is intimidating, and it's. Um, I think it's subliminally so, and it's also, it's also recog- Well, whatever. I mean, there's lots of different excuses for it, but it is. I'll be the I'll be the first to say if you don't have your own shit going on and you're dating a woman, it does. It's intimidating. Yeah, for sure. Know? Yeah, and I, you know, I've been with the same man for the last ten years, and he's a photographer, and he's Italian, and basically we come from very similar backgrounds, Mm -hmm. um, single artist mothers, Mm -hmm. two kids living in the ghetto kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's interesting to have met him because I was at the peak of my rebellion Mm -hmm. when we met and our first level of relationship was sort of based on that. Mm -hmm. And then we fell apart because I was like, well, I'm going to keep on doing this shit. Yeah. And he's like, well, then you keep on doing it by yourself. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, I got you, dude. Mm-hmm. Same here. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a mutual parting. And then when we came back together, it's because I understood that I was so rebellious that all the disrupting that I wanted to do was going to disrupt me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the power of being youthful and being able to party all night and literally wake up the next day and yeah. and start all over mm-hmm. and be working at a very high level um, started to wear at my soul mm-hmm. and I fell into darkness mm-hmm. and I knew that if I was going to continue to have to get my shit straight. Um, so I went into like a period of like, uh, self awareness and understanding where I come from and understanding the power of what I have. My talent is something that I pride my survival on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now it's past the point of survival. Now I have to create sustainability because I want to take care of my mother. Mm -hmm. She took care of me. Mm -hmm. It's my job. It's my role and my responsibility to to take care of myself enough for me to take care of her future. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to me that I create a business that is sustainable, but also reaches a pinnacle level where the whole world knows what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah. Um, it's, so would you say going back that you, you found yourself alone by being so uncompromising yeah. that that got to such an extreme that you learned that 
to really have the things that you want you have to compromise I have a little. to curb to my edges. Balance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. I understood because I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm edgy. I'm doing all this stuff. You, you don't want this. There's somebody else that does want this, and I can call the shots, and I can have it the way I want it. And at some point, you realize that there's there are people worth compromising a little oh, for. Oh, for and sure. That's, right. And that's not giving up who you are. Of it's course not. not. You know. Of course not. And so what I was finding at that time is that my edge was quite sharp, and it mm-hmm. would hurt people. Mm-hmm. And so what I needed to do was really round those edges out. Mm-hmm. And that really started to help. Or make them interlocking. Also. They don't <laughs> or also, you know, yeah. and to understand what true integrity was as a person and as an artist. Mm-hmm. And now, like, I dedicate so much, like, rightful authenticity in my work mm-hmm. that um, it bears really no room for critique. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm super honest and open and humble. What do you about... mean by that, that it doesn't bear room for critique? You mean what you do is unimpeachable or what, or you mean you don't listen to criticism? No, or... it's not that. It's um, if someone has an issue with what I'm doing, it's their problem. Gotcha. It's uh, a struggle with uh, someone's own you recognize what somebody else's shit and what is your shit yeah there's boundaries it's there. a very clear right. clear line for me mm-hmm. and you know i you know my work is super personal but i have a very professional way of communicating it mm-hmm. and i use my own face and my own self to communicate it and mm-hmm. so i might come up against a lot of people or adversity or critique etc cetera, etc cetera. but i understand that this is mm-hmm. there's an ebb and flow to this business mm-hmm, there's an mm-hmm. ebb and current to what i'm doing and in order for me to really preach sustainability i have to be mobile and i have to be fluid and i have to be adaptable and i have to be able to ride with the times but still retain my integrity mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of possibility in integrity and it's not something I'm willing to give away because it's priceless. Mm -hmm. And so with my brand, I'll continue to do it until I can no longer. Mm -hmm. And who knows what that is? Mm -hmm. That's something you're going to be able to keep up for a while as long as you keep it fresh. And right now you have a level, I mean, I've gathered from Instagram and stuff, Mm -hmm. you have a level of notoriety with some pretty famous people like and i i don't mind you like we can name drop a little bit here because it is a kind of an awesome arc you know the amount of turtles that try to get to the to the ocean you know and like you've come from a town like richmond and gone up there and established yourself and asserted yourself and been recognized by some pretty huge people like Mm -hmm. rihanna is one of them right rihanna beyonce madonna erica badu eve uh lady gaga Mm -hmm. anyone who's an entertainer that's pretty awesome. Yeah, Cameron Diaz. Like they got a lot of choices. They have, and they're choosing your shit. Yeah, they do. And you know, if you give, if you provide options, they will be taken. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I provide an exclusive point of view and um, exclusive meaning that the point of view itself is unique. It doesn't mean that my clients are exclusive. It means I have an inclusive distribution channel mm-hmm. and exclusive point of view, meaning that the people who your choose, vision is not to be is not going to be compromised. Not at all. Right. So people can choose to take and wear different jewelry brands and competitors, et cetera, et cetera. I could never fault them for their choices, but when they do land in on my front door, 
then they know what they're going to deal with. So Beyonce knew that she was going to get a $36,000 manicure. Mm. Nail rings made of 18 karat gold and studded in diamonds. Wow. So if anyone else knocks on my door and tries to more or less like invade my 1% market share, they can go fuck themselves. And, you know, it's at the beginning was super offensive when people would imitate me. And now I just laugh from Gucci to Topshop to et cetera, et cetera. Like uh, there's this phrase that Coco Chanel herself said um, that, you know, it would be insulting if you weren't getting imitated. Mm-hmm. You mean that whatever you're doing is not imitatable right. enough. It's not epic enough for people Prior to Prior to her, I think on. it was, I don't know, maybe Oscar Wilde imitation is the highest form of flattery. Yeah. You know. It is flattering. Um, but, but you still got to hold on to your share. It threatens my integrity. Yeah. And your living. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because yeah, we're, you know. People can mistake some bullshit. For your shit yeah. if it looks too much like your shit but it isn't done as well as your shit yeah and that's an epic problem and then we can fucking talk all day about these issues in the fashion industry but it's not just the fashion industry it's any industry well yeah i mean when you keep you talk about integrity a lot and that's something that i'm really conscious of is that you know i lived a compartmentalized life at one point you know i lived a double life like i tried to put on one kind of face to go to work and that did not line up with who i was outside of work at night you know and not even did my things like I'm a rock and roll guy by night and, and suit guy by day. I mean, I'm like I'm fucking doing shit that if my bosses knew, they wouldn't want me working there. Right. You know, and, um, you know, and to gradually to get into the, it's so much easier if your life is, is integrated like that. That's what it means mm-hmm. to have integrity. It means mm-hmm. that all of the pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. It all is one vision. It's one way of living. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just apply to work because you spend fucking majority of your life at work all right yeah. so it ought to be like your life you yeah. know without you it's not giving your life over to that it's that you need to be doing something that fits your overall yeah. identity and vision of life and yeah you, you should have one and know who you are and know how all that stuff goes together and then it's a blueprint for relationships whether they're romantic or family or mm-hmm. friends and professional mm-hmm. you know i mean it's all relationships it's all you relating to other people it's true <laughs> so you've got to have integrity to know who the fuck you are and we're you know where you assert yourself on specific things and where you're uncompromising on certain things and when you got some give and take yeah totally cut. how could i ever expect my clients to buy my stuff if they couldn't trust me mm-hmm. trust yeah yeah you're hitting on all of the big brand talk shit that mm-hmm. people you know that's the the movement you know these days it's like you got to trust the brand you got to trust the the people behind it you got to trust the quality of it you know, that's and, and back in the day, you could say whatever you wanted to about a product and very few people could find out otherwise until they'd already bought it, mm-hmm. you know, and now you can find out before you buy it. Yeah, whether or not true. it's Also, you know. Um, you know, working in the luxury industry, if I mean, trust and integrity, those are the defining principles of that that industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's quite interesting when you're able to talk about an industry, but you can also talk about a person in the same terms. Mm -hmm. And because I represent my work, um, I really have to be confident about it. I have to be secure with who I am. Because you personally, it represents you personally and you personally, you're the face of it and all of that. Yeah. And you know, people talk about ego all day. And when you're an artist, if you don't have an ego, you are not an artist. Well, a human being has to have an ego, or yeah. you're not getting out of the bed. Yeah. But like, you have to. That ego has to be porous. It has mm-hmm. to. You know, it has to have boundaries and places, and it mm-hmm. has to have 
you know, moving, it has to have, uh, you know, apertures in yeah, other yeah. places where things totally. can get in and out, yeah. you know, and that's the real thing. It's not about getting rid of ego. It's about get, like putting ego in its place. Yeah, yeah. It's a tool. It's like our operating system. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's not a hundred percent who we are even. It's mm-hmm. just the way that we um, process and assert and, and interlock with yeah. the world and all of that. And, um, and you know, it's there's no dividing it from the rest of your uh, consciousness or your mm-hmm. being, but mm-hmm. yet you can see where it is, is asserting itself almost as if it were a separate entity. Yeah. In you, no, you know? it's it's a super super important value, and you know, using my own, I guess, subliminal ego, I understand that my clients also have their own. But there's this one intersecting point of commonality, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's my work. Yeah. So if I can share my work every time I s- sell a piece, even if I don't know who they are, even if it's through one of my wholesale retailers, you know, I understand that the act of buying one of my pieces means that they are in accord with that selflessness mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. humility. And so. It's quite an interesting journey. They're going along with the, the the brand. They're not just wearing this thing. Yeah, it's like they want to associate with that. The they want to associate mm-hmm. with like the the values of the brand because it's just sort of stripped. It's mm-hmm. really raw. It's like, um, well, you know what? I want to make a statement, but I'm not going to say anything. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just going to be a visual, yeah. mm-hmm. and then. People can liken themselves to that visual, like sharing a love of an activity. Like, mm-hmm. I like to go to the club, therefore I wear a Bejeweled's bar ring, circa mm-hmm. 2003. Bitch, get it straight. <laughs> 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 so, you know what I mean? Like, there's a moment, like, you know, an intersection um, where those type of moments interlace, and mm-hmm. it's quite a romantic place. Mm-hmm. And so, because I like feeling good, Mm-hmm. Um, I have to be successful because mm. if not, I feel like a piece of shit. Mm. And, you know, no one wants to feel like that. Everyone wants to feel success and value and feel like, you know, it's not that I have to be a thoroughbred. I just have to be good at what I do. Yeah. And and the thing is, is that a person can feel like that without without having accomplished what you've accomplished. You know, not yeah. everybody's going to have their shit on Madonna's yeah, finger. That's true. And that's not the only measuring stick for not that. Not at all. But, but knowing what it is that you're setting out to do and being true to it, being true to yourself and, and having that integrity. And I think it's really, you know, I've had this interesting relationship with fashion in general for a long time. I never have really dressed you know, I've always kind of stayed in the um, camouflage kind of thing because I'm a big guy. You know, mm-hmm. I don't really need to make any other statement yeah, yeah, totally. other than that. But I've always paid attention to it. And when I was in high school, I actually did a presentation for my French class about Christian Lacroix and um, a bunch of other the haute couture people at the time. And I was I was interested in what they're doing. I get it, you know. And um, and it's very interesting. Like fashion is is one thing. Style is another mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And most people with style take elements of things that are going on in fashion. Somebody comes out with a line and, you know, there's a prevailing thing. Like everybody's fucking wearing vests and boots, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can be, you can almost pick it up as a uniform. You can. You can 
turn fashion into fascism and you could say i'm going to wear this fucking uniform so i can fit in with all of these other people right and it becomes this very dead thing it comes this very lemming thing this very mm-hmm. sucker thing mm-hmm. and that's not what's coming from the people creating it but so, so many people misunderstand it and they're um and, and so people with style are looking for ways to demonstrate their um acumen and their knowledge of what is in fashion mm-hmm. right now while still having their own style right and your stuff is is obviously something that fits into that exactly well it's like it's it's unique it's fashionable but it is also outside mm-hmm. of the lockstep um pressures of fashion yeah you know? no it's a um, really sort of a communication tool for uh, someone's individuality. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to be dignified or they're able right. to be uh, chic, whatever adjective you choose to describe. It's really up to that person who bought that piece mm-hmm. and is sporting that piece every day. You know, I have mm-hmm. clients who have been buying for me since day one. And, you know, I also respect them as clients. I don't want to... The, to abandon them as clients. So even as I'm evolving into the haute couture price point, I still want to be able to um, rationalize their new buy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to be honest, most of my clients that started buying in 2003 are still with me today Mm -hmm. because loyalty is, once again, priceless. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing uh, business model. Well, and that trust that, that your vision is going to be compatible with fashion, with haute couture, mm-hmm. wherever it's going, mm-hmm. your vision still is compatible with that without being uh, a slave to it. Of without course. Being, and also, mm-hmm. like a lot of those clients, their lives have progressed. They're making more money. Um, maybe they buy less, but it costs more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to also respect the evolution of my client in mm-hmm. addition to respecting the core values of my work. So... Mm-hmm. It's been really interesting and such like an evolution and it's super fluid and colorful and, you know, there's lots of textures and how I integrate my ideas into cultures. Mm -hmm. It's not just like American culture, it's European culture, Mm -hmm. it's Asian culture. International. Yeah, it's an international effort and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's... I have so many territories I haven't even tapped yet, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe you could plan to go to, uh, I'm going to Tunisia in the beginning of uh, June and I totally just put my finger down on a map wow. to pick this. So I'm going into it like you went into Paris yeah. back then and it's further removed because I'm at least a Westerner going to Paris. I mean, I'm going, you know, this used to be a French colony yeah, people speak say, French there. Yeah. Je parle un peu de français. Oh, I say, <laughs> Um, That's fun, Curtis. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I'm I'm also like, I'm like what you said about getting a car. I'm like, I don't even like know enough. I got street smarts here. I don't know enough to not get in a cab that I'm going to be kidnapped. In, yeah. You know, and supposedly that kind of shit's not going on there. But, you know, I, I made this choice this way to allow the random to come into mm-hmm. my life because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm 46, like we covered earlier, and I still need to have some of those experiences of before I can't. Do have them anymore because I'm physically unable or locked down with a family or mm-hmm. whatever's going to fucking happen. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm scared to be going there, honestly, you know, but it's, you know, cause it's not far from where shit is really fucked up. But, um, 
I also see it's extremely important that I face that fear, which is basically of the unknown. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about that, and and I'm used to knowing what's up. You know. Well, you're gonna do <laughs> some. You need to do research. Oh, I'm doing it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've I'm in contact with people that live there okay, and cool. and other international travelers i'm doing a lot of research online i mean the biggest thing they're like you're going to get ripped off like people are going to charge you four times what it should cost for a taxi so you know know that going in that you're going to have to haggle with people and i you know i probably will feel that out before i get too aggressive i might go ahead and get beat on the first thing you know just to get from the get from the airport to the hotel i'm staying yeah totally because that feels to me like the most vulnerable talk about the little f- turtles crossing the beach to get to the... Oh. I know that the hotel, it's um, a bed and breakfast run by a painter. So it's it's a very... Um, it's a s- structured but organic thing. That's cool. But getting from the airport to there is not even that far. It's like 20 miles. But um, I will be out of the control of... How like, long are you, you know, going for? A week. A little over a week. Like seven days. But you can come... Why don't you come down there? You know, there's... I'm staying in a quadruple room, so there'll be plenty <laughs> of space. Amazing. I think my boyfriend had something to say about that. Bring him. <laughs> Why not? It'll be... It's right during Ramadan, so you'll have to... You might have to wear a scarf in your not head or something. or but. whatever. Yeah. I mean, that sounds fascinating, Curtis. It's another market to get into. Yeah. Tunisia is the one that actually managed to have a democratic revolution. Wow. Yeah. That's fucking rad. I'm sure there's so much history there. There is. I mean... One of the reasons I'm excited about it is um, Carthage was a Roman city, mm-hmm. and I think it went in, and it was before that it was the the Phoenicians lived there, who were like concurrent with the fucking Egyptians, you Whoa. know, like 3000 BC. There were people like a seafaring people that lived around there. Wow. And then after that, I mean, that whole area around the Mediterranean was the fucking ancient world, and um, Carthage was huge, big part of where Roman Rome got a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. Like it was the breadbasket of Europe. It's like wow. a lot of food came from there. So there's 23 miles of Roman ruins in Carthage, right near where I'm staying in wow. City Bou Said. Yeah. Do you have like a tour guide or a fixer that's gonna? No, I don't have anything like that. But I'm hoping to use the people at the hotel like that. I figure I'll be able to trust them and kind of feel my way out from there. It's gonna be during Ramadan, so it's gonna be relatively chill during the day and kind of wild at night. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. Got to find somebody. I should try to find one of those actual, like, kind of guide people. Yeah. You know, if there's someone, you know, who is a local who works on doing that, that you can trust, maybe, you know, just sort of even attached to the hotel in a way. Yeah. You know? But I, I do want to have a little bit of a just fucking immersed you know and and take some of the safety guards off and experience like i mean these are legitimate reasons to be afraid you know and we go around afraid of bullshit all the time yeah you know and it kind of it tunes me up to get into situations that i should be afraid of that i should be aware that i'm in somewhat some danger Mm -hmm. because it reminds me that the shit that i usually go around stress out about is nothing yeah yeah for sure because you mentioned before the fight or flight thing that kicks in over somebody looking at you funny yeah you know because you... <laughs> oh you know i've also learned not to look people in the eye yeah i only do that with people that i know really also you know living in manhattan like there's so you encounter so many people mm-hmm. um so there's no need to open yourself to complete strangers mm-hmm. and you know kindness 
is a beautiful thing, but it's not something in a city environment, especially on Avenue motherfucking D. <laughs> that is that ain't a, really. I mean, Avenue D back in the '90s, maybe, but it's it's pretty chill now. I mean, <laughs> Lucy lives there, but I don't know. I guess I guess there's still yeah. some some shit you could step in. Oh yeah, know. like blood. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you've you've learned all of this stuff organically by trial and error mm-hmm. and just by exploring. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of it was taught to you in fa- fashion merchandising at VCU, you know, and, but not you're not going to give it any of it to them. No, I'm not. No. <laughs> it was awesome. enough an experience um, for me to look in a workbook and understand what... By the way, folks, she was shaking her head, no. That yeah. was... No. <laughs> um, I remember, you know, going through my textbooks and understanding what wholesale prices were how to make a retail markup etc cetera, etc cetera. um and that's a safe you know basic understanding of the market so for sure mm-hmm. at least i had like the ground skills mm-hmm. um but really to be an entrepreneur and be self-taught you have to make a lot of mistakes mm-hmm. and i've made a lot of mistakes and yeah. i've fallen flat on my face and it was painful mm-hmm. but i learned how to get back up like it didn't even happen mm-hmm. and never repeat that mistake ever again. So do you take in, uh, do you have apprentices or, or is there anybody that you've sort of like brought you? Yeah. Yeah. You I have. Yeah. I, I normally have like an influx of interest for assisting apprenticeships and mentorships. So oh. yeah. Anyone who has, um, the courage to contact me, I always entertain <laughs> a conversation. Yeah. That sounds like the, uh, Kung Fu, um, temple like if you have the <laughs> but it's you're ready true. to get smacked by a stick when you come in <laughs> no but it's true like listen kurt like i had this one woman email me from czechoslovakia and she was like hey i'm coming to new york and i was wondering if i might be able to apprentice under you and you know here's my work and i flipped through her work and she was an ultimate talent mm-hmm. like really quite talented and had constructed her own point of view. And I just frankly said, listen, I'm totally open to sharing my world with you. But why are you not just doing it yourself? Mm-hmm. Like you have a very poignant sense of artist, artist self. Mm-hmm. You could just be doing this on your own. She was like, you know, I'd rather learn from you who's already been able to taught her, teach her way. Mm-hmm. So actually, if you don't mind, I'd love to mentor under you. And she came and... She had the courage to ask me for help. Mm -hmm. And when she came, like, I knew she was only going to be able to, because I was in Europe and Paris and Milan for a while. And when I came back, she was ready to come work for me. And she worked for me for a few weeks. But what I really wanted her to take away from the experience was that also coming from the Eastern Bloc, recovering from communism, that she'd have to acknowledge a Western way of survival and like uh, a way to a new perspective Mm -hmm. that had to be fresh and riskful. So uh, I feel like any of these experiences that I've lived through, if I can identify people as followers and those who I can teach, it's actually part of my responsibility to yeah. help build a responsible future for me to operate in. Yeah. So I do organize um, talks and I do 
intensive courses at universities. I do a lot of talking Mm -hmm. um, because I do find that, you know, if, for example, I was in Italy and I went to the closing fashion show for a university in Italy. Mm. It was so poor that I was embarrassed for the students, but really angered by the teachers Mm -hmm. having let this type of irresponsible fashion direction happen in front of a hundred or more people. So basically they didn't guide the students well enough so that what the students presented at the end was embarrassing to them. It wasn't curated properly. Not at all. It wasn't curated properly. Also, there was no sense of real market understanding. Um, So what I did is I set forth on this path of education and I started teaching at different universities um, in Italy, in Paris, um, here, I mean, in the States, in New York, Parsons, Pratt, everywhere I could because if I'm going to be working in a business that is basically more or less a money-making platform, I have to be sure that the people who are working also inside of that industry understand the lay of the land Mm -hmm. if you are working in a landmine you better know where those landmines are Mm -hmm. and if you don't you're going to set it off and that's risky for the people around you Mm -hmm. it could pollute the fucking waters exactly because i mean really there's so much i mean with fashion and with all the accoutrements they go along there is a, a always been an element of emperor's new clothes there, mm-hmm. you know, like what actually has value and what just has perceived value, what just has value because it soaked up some shit off somebody else or what is actually a quality made. I mean, people are buying things just because it's got the fucking polo insignia on it that they mm-hmm. wash it one time and it's crooked, you know, it wasn't made well. It's that's a bad garment, you know, yeah. it's shitty. And like that, that means people don't want to trust buying things with that logo on it or they want to buy certain things so it can fuck up the trust that is inherent in somebody saying well you know there is a difference i mean it's certainly like polo stuff for instance i remember buying that stuff in the uh, 90s or, or even 80s and there was a reason why that shit was expensive it wasn't just that it, it had cachet. It was like well-made stuff. It didn't fucking shrink when you washed it. It didn't fade. It right. like fit well, you know, because somebody really didn't cut corners. They didn't send the crap to Malaysia, right. you know, and not even oversee what's happening over there. Just farm it all the fuck out. So if people are doing that kind of shit all the time, then people think that's what everything is. And it's just about fooling somebody into spending money. For something that ain't worth shit. Yeah. As opposed to like this money is being exchanged for value. Like because somebody took the time to develop it and, and fabricate it and, you know, find good material and put a lot of thought into the design and all of that. And I so that's what you're saying is like if, if that standard's not maintained, then people don't know, can't trust. They don't want to buy your shit because they bought some bullshit. Right. Exactly. Else, you know? um, it's there's a certain level of pollution, but also creatively speaking um if you're a fashion designer if you're working in any creative industry if you don't um risk your process or if you don't evaluate your um creative road then your point of view has no value Mm -hmm. so don't get in my way Mm -hmm. if you don't have actual integrity 
don't get in the way of others that do. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. sort of like in New York. Like, there's so many people. Don't be a dick. Yeah, you don't know how to walk down the fucking sidewalk. Then get like, out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's why tourists are fucking obnoxious. Yeah, yeah. So you're like, you're impeding no, my flow, bro. What we call it in the warehouse is situational awareness. Like, you have to maintain that while <laughs> yeah, you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. While, if you want to look at some shit, you know, keep your head on a swivel. Like, yeah. you know, don't... Yeah, peripheral vision. You know who's behind you. You know how fast the... Uh, traffic's moving on the yeah, sidewalk yeah. all that um this has been really awesome and we could go on for longer and longer i've really really enjoyed this though there's just so much to i i, I mean i never never thought what you were doing was trivial but i never knew how much of a uh, fucking adventure it's been for you and the struggle and like you know um a good kind of struggle like yeah. you've you've really been out there with like a machete and yep. and blazing your own trail yeah. and um, it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's gonna you know take that. me longer. You ain't just understand. a pretty face, Jules. Oh, thanks, Curtis. <laughs> no, it's definitely been um a long road, but I'm not in it to be a flash in the pan. Like longevity is really um super important to what I'm mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for taking some time to talk to me today. I'm glad we got this done. Yeah, thanks, RVA. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, wasn't that great? I know it was. It was awesome. I'm very proud of that, and I'm very grateful that Jules took some time. Julie took some time out of her schedule to come over here and do my podcast on a Monday morning after visiting her mom for Mother's Day and having that number done on her, and I'm sure it did, as it does to all of us when we hang out with our pads. So I'm going to see Dead Meadow tonight at Strange Matter. I'm pretty pretty psyched about it. I always like those guys. And then I'm going to see Atomic Bitchwax next week, and I'm skeptical about them. Also at Strange Matter because they're not the original lineup. There ain't no Ed Mundell from Monster Magnet playing guitar in that band anymore, and the drummer's not the same. They used to be pretty awesome, all three of them, but we'll see. It's been raining for two weeks here. Ever since Prince died, people are pointing out some fucking purple rain, all right. Serious period of universal mourning over his royal badness. That or it's just the weather. Quiver in my bones just thinking about the weather. A shiver in my voice as if I might cry. Y'all know what's up with that, right? It is good to be back in the swing of doing this, and uh, I have a bunch more coming up. Got better equipment. We're still rolling. Still rolling with the tantric conversation. Still being tantric. Still assembling the archive, the audio centipede of conversations interfacing one on one, one guru to another we teach and we learn and we listen and we talk and we see where it goes and the universe reveals what it wants to reveal through the two of us as we talk yes jobless my children namaste